You hear a cricket in the room, chirping incessantly. A terrible, hateful, inescapable noise. It hurts. You try not to listen. You swear and call them names. You run away. You cry. How can one reason with the cricket? And then you realize you cannot escape the cricket. They will always find you. The cricket is everywhere. You must face them. You take a deep breath and embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Episode 52 of Embrace the Void, where Trump can sit down one-on-one with Supreme Court nominees and Russian mob bosses, but not with Robert Mueller. I'm your host, Aaron, and with me as always is my deeply overworked co-host, GW. How you doing, G-dubs? I wonder if we gave, like offered him a seat that was in gold if he would sit with mm. Mueller. Yeah. Because he likes that kind of shit. That, like, I think if we told him that his interview with Mueller would get more ratings than anything more ratings than higher ratings in the super bowl mm. i think he'd sit down on public television do that thing yeah actually i think that would work i would totally I work. work we should it's the the uh, trump equivalent of a box with a stick propping it up or we could say but like sit down work. with Mueller, and we'll build your wall we won't actually build your wall we'll just use a trump technique and yeah. lie to him and then we'll say that we never said that good plan um <laughs> so yeah uh welcome everybody um Hope y'all are. Uh, hope y'all enjoyed the interview with Stitch. I feel like that was a great time, and um, I'm happy to say I had a great time at Nexus, which is a skeptic convention here in New York this past weekend. And I picked up uh, some emails for some more really amazing individuals in various fields that I'm excited to get on for the show. Um, so we're gonna be looking forward to that in the future. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to uh, our hilarious invocation writer for today, Petra Partake. Uh, I like that last name, especially. I hope that that's um, uh, descriptive and not just luck. Uh, well, everything's and, luck. I mean, yeah. that's what we've learned about right. on this podcast. That's right. oh, I'm so proud of you. Jump <laughs> right on that. Uh, and I guess let's maybe give another shout out to our um, raffle winners. We sent out our uh, copies, uh, signed copies of Hamilton and Philosophy to David Maslick. I think that's right. That's right. I did it. I did the thing. Um, brusque platypus and uh, peasants with pitchforks and glow sticks. Um, and um, yeah, it was a great time. I'm really happy to be able to do that sort of thing. Uh, and I think it'd be fun to do it again in the future, maybe with some uh, void merch at some point. And that could be nice. Uh, um, or, you know, I'm thinking of writing a book on how terrible Logan is. And then maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll, we'll put that out as a raffle. Ethics and the terribleness of Logan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Look forward to reading that and then burning it. Um, so today we are going to start off with our uh, Infinite Parts uh, series, Better Know a Philosopher. Uh, before we get to that, we were going to do, I guess, a quick check in on our void news. 
Uh, it looks like things are just moving along great, thanks to Rod Rosenstein. 11 indictments! 11 indictments! Yeah, I love that they dropped that right before he had to go sit next to Putin. That was... Trump got pretty badly owned on that one, I feel like. And I, I do genuinely think that there's a, a chance that this coming week is the, the week in which Rod Rosenstein loses his job. I that. I haven't looked this up yet, and I really want to. I am just curious to know how Fox News has spun this. Because the indictment, the indictments were so detailed, which is really atypical for people like this. You know, counterintelligence is usually really hush-hush and you barely hear anything, if anything at all. These were incredibly detailed. They named them by name, where they worked, when they worked, who they worked for, like their work schedule. Like it was ridiculous, like exactly what, what they things they worked lunch. on and when they worked on them. It was insanely detailed. Yeah. And I think from from what I what it, what it sounds like is that was an attempt to um, sort of put skin in the game and make it clear that there is a lot of content behind this investigation and that it's going to continue and i think having the doj doing it rather than having it coming from Mueller directly i think is an attempt to suggest that um trump can't shut this down merely by shutting down Mueller. that it's already sort of spread and be metastasized beyond Mueller, and there's just no stopping this investigation yeah, I don't know who to give credit for this. Let's assume uh, uh, Rosenstein. But like, this is a brilliant move because there is no like I am objectively trying to like steel man the opposite position of like the counter to what this would be to try to flip it in some way. And nothing comes to mind. It's yeah, so and brilliant. And you'd have to put someone smart on it. And, and unfortunately, Donald Trump's narcissism appears to be making him pathologically incapable of addressing this, any of these claims, because it was his election. And he's terrified of the idea that he didn't win because he was brilliant, but in fact, because there was a variety of uh, nefarious acts going on around him and probably involving him, if we're being honest. Um, yeah, that so, in combination with uh, that FBI agent testifying, um, which like was also really yeah. brilliant. The guy like didn't back down and he was like, nope, you all can go fuck yourselves. I wasn't being biased in my actions. I may have been biased in my personal life in it in personal text, which obviously shouldn't have been done on a work phone. But like, I also loved the point he made about let's let's assume I wanted to. Like, there's so many checks and balances in this organization, it would be impossible mm. for me to sway it. Yeah, that was a very good point that he made, that pushback against Gowdy. So, and also today there was another indictment. I don't know if you caught this, but it, like, very recently there was a woman um, today who uh, is being indicted for being a go-between with the Russians and the Trump campaign, essentially that she's been accused of being part of facilitating the Trump Tower meeting. Is this um, that, that, that that female Russian lawyer woman? No, it's not um Veselinskaya. Oh, oh. It's it's been um Benita, I think is her name or something. Um I I just caught that this was happening right before we went to recording. Uh but yeah, it's this is gonna this is what it's gonna be like. I think it's just gonna continue to be this this spread and and like we're gonna see more and more of the iceberg and I think Donald Trump's going to be really looking to start some violence here soon, like to, like in terms of trying to start firing some people, because he's got to not be at all happy that his 
um, meeting with Putin became all about this. Um, you know, his and he did such a bungled job of trying to address it going into those meetings when he was asked, like, you know, are you going to have Putin extradite these people? He was like, oh, well, I hadn't thought about it. Maybe we'll talk about it. And it's just like he has a really, really uh, uh, impressive level of detachment from his own job. Like he's doing what we would consider most of us would consider the most important job he's ever going to do in his lifetime. And just the lack of interest in what he's supposed to be paying attention to is is creepy. He seemed he seemed to be more excited about going to his resort or whatever that he has in Scotland than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I wish he would just. Well, no, I don't. I don't want to wish that on the Scottish, but uh. my people. Um, the other thing I found really interesting is uh, I think I've realized like the whole Mueller thing. I found a perfect analogy. It's like malaria, right? Like when you get malaria, it like starts out really small and it like it comes in these bursts and then it, it, it like goes away, then comes back worse. And then it, and then it goes away and it comes back worse. And it's mm. because you're, it's your, all your blood cells bursting. Uh, that's exactly what this is like. It's like malaria. It just keeps getting like, there'll be a lull and then it'll burst. And then there's a lull, then it'll burst. Yeah. It's got to drive them crazy that, the Mueller team is playing such a defensive style game in the sense of not trying to be out there fighting Trump in his realm, but but doing their business very, very quietly in a way that no one can seem to effectively criticize. And then when necessary, dropping these little things that make it impossible to say this is going nowhere. Yeah, to my knowledge, like Mueller doesn't does he even have a Twitter account <laughs> like I have no idea. It seems it's like I haven't seen any. I'm not a big Twitter person. You're more of a Twitter person than I am. I haven't seen anyone retweet or or post any of his tweets. Yeah, so I'm assuming he doesn't even have one, which is I don't, brilliant. I, don't that, I, don't, I mean, like the crazy thing is you can find so little about like his day to day activity. Like he does. They don't have pictures of him recently because he just. He just doesn't know. He avoids the press entirely. It seems like it's just it seems so calculated and I love it and I want to kiss him on the mouth. Yeah, no, it's an impressive amount of um, restraint. I can't imagine the willpower it takes to know as much as he does and, and be so in the middle of it and say nothing. That's that's really heroic. Oh. All right, let's let's get to our philosopher. Let's do some philosopher. I think therefore I am. Rene Descartes. Optimism, madness, that all well when we miserable. Voltaire. Chicken, Peter, you're just a little chicken. Cheat, 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 cheat. Not me, Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> uh, so, our first philosopher is uh, a favorite, I think, of probably of many of our fans. Um, we're going to talk about John Rawls. Um, one of the greats of modern philosophy and one of the greats of liberal philosophy um, for our, since we said, as we talked about last time, what we would categorize him as he fits into the analytic tradition. Um, and yeah, uh, what was really fun for me was I was going back and doing some reading about him, about, a little bit about his personal life. You, you know, like we reference them by name when we cite their theories, but we don't, usually go too deep into their bios when we're studying these individuals and it turns out john rawls had a voidy fucking life like especially the first half of it so here are my highlights uh so rawls is born in 1921 okay so he's born between the wars 
um, during his childhood, two of his brothers died by contracting fatal illnesses from him. Whoa. So, in both cases. What, like, so like measles or something? Dip, diphtheria and then pneumonia. Wow. And in both cases, he was sick and his brothers came and visited him and got sick and died. And like his, his biographers describe it as probably the most important event of his childhood. Um, but it's just, it's, it's I, crazy to imagine what that would do to someone. I don't know why, but I just ima- like for some reason imagined like that he was born in like ancient Greece, like in Sparta and, and his father was just like, they were the weaker sons. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> right. It does, it does add an extra layer of voidiness, I feel like, that it came from him. It'd be one thing of, like, you know, both your brothers died when you're in childhood, but that extra layer of guilt of, like, <laughs> and I gave it to them. Um, so, despite that, he was really into theology and was studying uh, theology, gets a, a bachelor's um, at Princeton. Um, he, you know, he's studying theology and, and a variety of other subjects, I think philosophy and such. And then he enlists in 1943. The really great time to enlist for those who aren't familiar with history. Mm-hmm. Um, he ends up being an infantryman. Uh, sorry, he ends up being an infantryman in the Pacific. Uh, during which time he sees a bunch of horrible shit. I thought uh, you were going to say whores. <laughs> no, you he like said, the way you said that. You're like whole, and I was like whores. Horrible shit. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, amongst the things he saw, right, he saw a guy commit basically suicide by sniper, where he took off his helmet knowing that he would get shot because he didn't want to be in the war anymore. Whoa. Um, and, and that was described as one of the major events that leaded to, led to Rawls losing his faith alongside seeing the effects of the atomic bomb firsthand um, when he was over in around Hiroshima. And then uh, at one point, he'd been, at this point, he'd been promoted to sergeant. And he refused to punish a soldier uh, because he didn't believe that the punishment was justified or necessary and gets demoted back down to private. And so he just becomes totally disillusioned, leaves the army, uh, becomes an atheist, goes back to college at Princeton and gets a doctorate in moral philosophy. Um, Which is amazing to me, right, to have that kind of life and then turn around and come back and write what are arguably what is arguably one of the most important modern philosophical texts out there the theory of justice um he also fun fact he was a teacher of thomas nagel our moral luck guy oh so that's exciting <laughs> it would have been can you I don't know, can imagine being in the same room as the two of them at the same time that would be deeply intimidating um yeah so Rawls is considered sort of the modern founder, the modern father of, of political liberalism. So a tradition that really took off with John Stuart Mill and Bentham um, and then gets revived uh, or sort of given sort of a fresh boost by Rawls when he lays out the theory of justice, which includes his theory of the original position, all in an attempt to sort of give an account of the justificatory basis for liberalism say why liberalism is justified can you give me some examples of uh of that argument or of that text yeah so this is the main text that we want to talk about um so what rawls does and this is a great example of our analytic tradition right um it's it's very similar to socrates as well uh 
he starts by asking a very simple question. What is justice? Right? A good society, it seems like, is a just society. So what is a just society? Well, a just society, he argues, is one that is fair. That's the, hence the title, right? Um, and then he unpacks the idea of fairness in terms of what everyone would reasonably agree to. So that's a common sort of move. Um, what he's most famous for, really, is the way that he unpacks that idea in the form of a, thought, a very famous thought experiment called the original position. So following in the tradition of um, the social contract doctrine philosophers, so the social contract doctrine is the idea that the, the mandate of a society is based around the trading in of certain natural rights for the sake of civil rights and protections within a system where we're all agreeing to abide by certain rules, essentially. Uh, this comes out of Hobbes and uh, Locke and Rousseau. Um, and what he does is he takes that idea and sort of asks the question, you know, this is a good idea in principle, but obviously we can't, in practice, get everyone together and get them to sign off on that social contract. So is there any way for us to show that the social contract itself is a is really the kind of the thing we would want to call a contract, something that everyone is really voluntarily agreeing to. And in order to do that, mm -hmm. sorry, sorry, I didn't mean yeah. to interrupt you. Uh, no, go ahead. I wonder. It, it made me think if he was, you know, living around now, if he would look at that question differently, right? Because with the internet, it is. I mean. You can get pretty damn close to reaching almost everyone, except, you know, for folks that don't have internet access, but it's... I mean, it's an interesting question. He lived until 2004, so he saw the birth of the internet. Mm. 2002, excuse me. Um, so, yeah, I think that is that is a fun sort of idea. Like, could you really do a, a real version of what he, what he envisions in the original position? Mm -hmm. um, of course, the problem would be, he would say it lacks a key feature. So here's the way the original position works, right? Let's imagine that we are disembodied spirits or something. We don't know who we are going to be in the real world. We don't know any of the features of ourselves. Uh, this is called the veil of ignorance. And behind that veil of ignorance, the question is what would we, as self-interested but ignorant of our features individuals, what rules would we all agree to for a society, for us to be born into. And then the idea is uh, the society that we would all agree to not knowing how we would end up in that society is therefore a fair society. It's fair to say, you know, you would you would agree to this in principle in that scenario. That makes sense? Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think I remember us talking about this experiment a while ago. So, yeah, it's coming to mind. So, keep, yeah, please going yeah we mentioned it before and i've talked about it on other i talked about it on oa once um right it's it's uh, a really great experiment right because like yeah anyone you can ask anyone this question uh you know even even a kid uh and it really mm -hmm. it's it's such a brilliant way of like taking everything out of the equation yeah it's a very clean clear straightforward kind of thought experiment that can be applied, I think, very, very broadly. That, you know, when you list the things that you wouldn't know about behind the veil of ignorance, that's the kind of living idea that would grow as your society would realize more and more things 
are are things that people use as a justification for because we see the reason for the the veil of ignorance right if you didn't have the veil of ignorance what would be the big problem mm-hmm. you have a oh i was curious if you wanted to socratic dialogue with me and and oh. what would be the problem of of people knowing all of those things do you know what type of person you're going to become or you don't know what type of person you're going to become that's what you that's what he thinks you need to be deprived of the knowledge of that you can't know you know how rich you're going to be how poor you're going to be mm-hmm. right yeah, i can't so the reason i can't think of anything yeah. specifically that would be it's just a very broad kind of you know it's the ba- sorry it's just, it's one of these things that's like a, it's a, not a well-framed question cuz it's so sort of obviously basic in the sense that what he's just trying to do is prevent people who would agree to rules thinking knowing that they're going to be in a position to take advantage of those rules. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. 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 So somebody might be fine with a system that has no social safety net if they know they're going to be born rich. Right. Right. So he wants to take away all of that stuff, but he also wants to try to avoid building in assumptions. Right. It's very important here that he doesn't cheat and just uh, assume the kind of liberal, and this is part of the main critique of his theory that he does effectively um, cheat and assume certain things, um, and that you can raise uh, objections to the principles that he espouses from this thought experiment as being sort of deriving from begging the question a little bit. Um, but but his goal, his stated goal, is to be able to say, you know, everyone would buy into this kind of um, theory. Even people who might not be exactly of the same mindset as a, a radical leftist liberal or something. Yeah, um, yeah. You, and, and it makes you go like, yeah, I want the Star Trek-like world. <laughs> right. And it fe- it has that kind of feel to it that like... It has a really good kind of, like actual Marxist sort of position. Not communist and not mm-hmm. socialist, but like actual true Marxism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... What he thinks follows from this, right? He lays out two principles. Um, these are ordered principles, and the second one is, a, is subdivided essentially into two ordered principles as well. Uh, the first main principle is that he believes everyone in the original position would commit to a society where everyone has equal rights, basically. Equal rights and equal opportunities. So, so this first principle is very sort of classic liberalism right you and you can see how it would i think you hope would you would be able to see how it follows from the uh sort of original position set up as i've laid it out right why would everyone buy into an equal rights theory if if we're if we're behind the veil of ignorance yeah because if if you don't know which bucket you're going to land in right if you if you take the position of right like you want the world to be like a monarchy with serfs and stuff like, but serfs make up over 50% of the population, there's a really good chance you're going to become a serf. So, like, do you really want to help construct a world that does that? Yeah, and and would you be willing to roll the dice and end up in that position, basically? Yeah. So I think You roll that D20 that, and you get a two, you're like, damn it! Right. I mean, realistically, right, if you roll the D20 and you get one through 19, you end up a serf. You're right. probably not willing to take that bet. And there's some, there's some interesting pushback that you can make about, well, is he... Like what your dexterity you know, what level is and... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> no, but what if I'm a risk taker, right? What if I'm like a power gamer and I'm willing to take that risk? Mm-hmm. Um, like, 
maybe I would uh, um, be willing to to try to be in an unequal society and think that I would try to just win win out in that system. But I think his his response is sort of, uh, you know, not everyone's going to buy into a risky society, but everyone would be willing to accept a slightly safer society. It seems like. But what if? I feel I feel like we're we're describing a script of a movie. Uh, but like what if everyone who was born was aware of of their spirit self and buying into what this system was and maybe do you think that maybe they would be more like let's assume for a moment we're going to do our own thought experiment. Let's assume that everyone yeah. was like, yeah, we'll do one that's a little swayed for like the top 20% of people are much better off than the bottom 60 or whatever. Uh, that's not good math. The bottom 80. Uh, then, like, but what if you were aware once you were born, right? Like, would you be more willing to sort of accept your place? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I would probably feel like the me that came after I was born was a different me than the was in the original position. I'd be pretty angry at the me in the original position for having been so stupid as to try to roll that dice. <laughs> You'd be mad, mad at uh, a spirit, Aaron. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be mad at past me. Yeah, that's not an uncommon problem, right? I'm a I'm a four dimensional entity, and I'm there are various time slices of me in the past that can suck it. Right, <laughs> and then Spirit Aaron is just like man up oh, there, their corporeal Aaron. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I've derailed you. <laughs> no, You've gone off okay. the 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 rail rolls, the rolls rails. Um, no, I actually just realized that I told myself to suck it, which is not appropriate. <laughs> I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, it's too late. I ruined it. Yeah, it's all right. We're all flawed people. Um, yep, I apologize. Uh, so, so that's his first principle, and he says you can't violate that one for the sake of the second principle. So if, this, if you were going to try to do anything to achieve the second principle that would take away equal rights, that's no good. Right? So from there, he goes into what I think is a really nice, sophisticated attempt to avoid sort of radical equality of economic opportunity or outcome. So what he says is, here's the formal rule. Um, social and economic inequalities are to satisfy two conditions. First, they are to be attached to positions and offices open to all under conditions of fair equality of opportunity. So everyone has to be able to get you know, the highest paying jobs available if they work hard enough. And second, they are to be the greatest benefit to the least advantaged members of society. So if there's income inequality, it is only considered just if it is substantially beneficial to the lowest members of society. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And you and again, you can see how the same fundamental uh, reasoning would apply, right? If you were in that original position and didn't know where you were going to end up, you would want a society that would take care of you, even if you had the worst possible moral luck you could have. All right. It's almost a way it's like Make some sense. Ex yeah. Yeah. Uh, excuse the term, but um, it's almost like a handicap, right? In golf or whatever, in bowling, right? For mm -hmm. those that have an average that's a lot uh, lower, they have a higher handicap, while those with a higher average have a lower handicap in order to try to see who is who is bowling better or playing golf better for this game. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's a great idea because it, it allows for forms of inequality while also strongly justifying things like 
progressive income taxes, social safety nets, all these applied liberal solutions to massive wealth inequality that I think have been successful in improving the quality of life for people in the modern world. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, we'll talk in a second about some of the criticisms of uh, being able to justify this to non-liberals, but I do think he does a great job if you if you accept the basic liberal ideals about society as being able to include various different kinds of people, that he does a really great job setting up uh, a, a sort of hypothetical test that allows us to answer the question, would I be okay with this principle or that principle, um, and that these specific pr liberal principles seem to necessarily follow from that position. Yeah, I'm with if it. That, if that makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's great. I think it's a really, I mean, there's a reason he's considered maybe the greatest philosopher of, of his century uh, or one of the greatest philosophers of his century. Um, he only wrote two other books besides this. Um, he wrote a book on political liberalism that sort of attempts to address this main criticism that I've been alluding to, that um, even though he purports to be presenting a system that, in theory, everyone would buy into, it is also kind of a system that packages in certain assumptions about uh, society that various people um, wouldn't necessarily agree with, and that if the the whole system is a, is based on the idea that it literally has to be acceptable to 100% of human beings that he may not actually be able to claim that. Um, Wait, say that one more time. So he's trying to claim that the system is fair because everyone would buy into it. But that has to be true even of people who aren't already sort of assuming some liberal ideas. And I think that he has a hard time making that case. So just to give one kind of example, right? If I'm a, a very thoroughgoing racist and I really, <laughs> really genuinely believe that like the, the races have intrinsic differences and shouldn't be treated equally and society will be better for everyone of every race if we adhere to some sort of hierarchical system, okay? I might firmly reject any of the equal the first the first principle right i might firmly reject the first principle and say i'm willing to reject it even if i'm born into one of those races that i consider would be inferior ah uh, i see right so uh it becomes challenging to show why if they don't already sort of presume the idea of equal rights why they would necessarily accept it i think in that case the solution is to try to lay out kind of a contingent um, agreement between you and the thoroughgoing racist where you say, look, I strongly disagree with you on the science of racism. Could we say, hypothetically, if we get to the real world and it turns out the science shows that you're wrong, then you would accept an equal society. But if it turned out the science showed that you were right, then we would accept your unequal society. Um He's really, and this is what he tries to work on some in his second book, and, and struggles with a little bit, to be honest, that like uh, political legitimacy um, struggles in the face of intractable moral disagreement. If your claim is that the 
the the fair the, the claim that the society is fair is predicated on everyone agreeing to that society but we seem to be having can we continuing problems of intractable disagreement about what everyone wants society to look like it, it doesn't become clear that you can actually you know you can he's it feels like he's getting what he wants for free without actually proving that he can convince all of these people of this thing that he claims to convince them of right right um it's this is an appeal to what's called um uh public reasons the idea that uh what we care about is being able to justify ourselves to others um, by being able to give them a reason that is accessible to everyone. So this would be, for example, why uh, religion is not a good basis. Um, I've got a good quote here, actually, from this book, if, you're th if that's all right. Yeah, please. It's a little long, but I think it's fine. Um, an unreasonable uh, comprehensive doctrine is unreasonable in the sense that it is uh, incompatible with the duty of civility. So he's trying to say, what are the doctrines that wouldn't be good, sufficient justifications for a society? So this is simply another way of saying that an unreasonable doctrine is incompatible with the fundamental political values a liberal theory of justice is designed to safeguard, freedom, equality, fairness. So one answer to the question of what Rawls has to say about such doctrines is nothing. For one thing, the liberal state cannot justify itself to individuals such as religious fundamentalists who hold to such doctrines because any such justification would, as has been noted, proceed in terms of controversial moral or religious commitments that are excluded from the public political forum. But more important, the goal of the Rawlsian project is primarily to determine whether or not the liberal conception of political legitimacy is internally coherent, and this project is carried out by the specification of what sorts of reasons persons committed to liberal values are permitted to use in their dialogue, deliberations and arguments with one another, et cetera, and political matters. Right? The Rawlsian project has this goal of the exclusion of concern with justifying liberal values to those not already committed or at least open to them. Rawls's concern is with whether or not the ideas of political legitimacy, fleshed out in terms of the duty of civility and mutual justification, can serve as a viable form of political discourse in the face of religious and moral pluralism, um, not with justifying the conception of political legitimacy in the first place. So that's uh, so. Let me unpack that a little bit. There, yeah. what they're saying is um, Rawls is not trying to give an answer to the question of why be liberal, right? He's not going to be able to give a knockdown argument that will force a religious fundamentalist who is radically against a liberal society to buy into liberalism. The best he can do is show that liberalism is internally consistent and can maintain its structure in an ethically pluralistic world where you have people with various competing worldviews, but that those worldviews do overlap to some extent and that you can find agreement within those spaces of overlap. Yeah, it's almost sense. it's almost like he's saying. Correct me if I'm wrong. If if I'm misreading this, it's almost like mm -hmm. he's saying that um, you can still have this type of system even in a pluralist society with people of mm -hmm. different backgrounds and people of different faiths and people of different you know ideologies and the like. Yeah, and what he sort of says is, look, you're not going to have the exact same reasons for everyone. Each individual in their own community with their own religious or secular beliefs 
is going to justify their commitment to the social doctrine in slightly different ways. But as long as there is some way that it does appeal to them that you so you can't get everyone to agree to a theocracy on this view because not everyone holds the same belief in God. That would be not what he would consider a public reason. But you could argue everyone believes in reducing harm and increasing quality of life. And so you can get everyone to buy into that, even if some of them are buying into it because Jesus wants them to, and other ones are buying into it because they're humanists. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, yeah, because it sounds like, you know, one group could buy into this for one reason, while another group could buy into it for a different reason. But the fact remains that everyone's buying into it. It's almost like that golden rule kind of a thing, right? Do unto those that you would like to be done unto you. It's just yeah, an extrapolation it's just sort of from that. Version. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so many, so many things in ethics often start to look like that if you talk about them long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it is a useful structure for talking about how to have communication amongst pluralistic ethical systems. Um, it doesn't solve the fundamental meta-ethical problem of why be moral, which is you know, in this case, why be moral in the form of why be liberal? Uh, but not a lot of things do. So I don't think we should fault him too much for that. Right. Um, one last thing to note before we run too much out of time. He did a third book where he tried to apply all of this stuff to um, global politics because most of theory of justice is centered around within a society. So sort of intra versus inter society political issues. Um, And there were some interesting slight variations on what he put forward in the international system. So prior to writing that, a lot of people had assumed that his same principle of public reasons and his same principles of equal rights and equal access and all that would be applied on a global scale, just like we would apply it on a national scale. There's no any there's no reason to think that global liberalism would look any different than stateside liberalism. Uh, But. Actually, he was a little. He wasn't. He wasn't fully on board with the idea that we would necessarily be committed to uh, distributing all of these things globally. That that it might be, in fact, the case that uh, what we are obligated to do is engage with other societies, specifically ones that are either tolerant or decent. Um, and by and and by decent, what he means there is not liberal, but whatever they are not they are german the, <laughs> yes officially within the bounds of not nazis um so well yeah because it's it seems like you know imagine a country doesn't not that hard to imagine right imagine a country with uh, like a monarchy sort of system right you know right. look at saudi arabia right it'd be almost impossible for saudi arabia to adopt this system because it it seems like he is heavily influenced by a democratic government, right? That mm-hmm. it's almost like you can't yeah. have this system without a democratic or, you know, de- uh, democratic socialist or something of that type, right? Anything that is autocratic in basis, it seems like it wouldn't be compatible. Uh, yeah. So well, what, what I would say is that like the social contract is kind of our modern understanding of democracy. Right. It heavily influenced right, our constitution. So yeah, I agree. It, he's he's firmly planted within the cultural viewpoint that he was raised in, which is that kind of liberalist perspective. Um, 
So, but what that means is, you know, you can work with uh, religious theocrats as long as they aren't committing too many human rights abuses. And right, you'd have to, the realities of global politics being what they are, you have to balance uh, the need to try to pull people into the modern community versus um, not propping up uh, dictatorships. Um, and in, he also seems to, at various points, advocate for pretty forceful uh, intervention in countries that are engaged in really inhumane practices. So that's speaking of speaking of liberals, right? That's the kind of the liberal idea of we, sh- we need to show up if you know if, if atrocities are being committed, basically. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I, you know, I. I that's sort of the most of what I have on him. I find it fascinating that he had those really horrible experiences early on, but went on to create what I think is a powerful framework for uh, moral discussion and agreement within groups. It could be so easy, I feel like, to go into a very voidy place after all of his experiences and sort of take a more Hobbesian kind of approach to the social contract that we just have to uh, force the social contract on people and they're they're better off living under an authoritarian dictatorship than than no dictatorship at all basically I wonder um, I wonder if he if he was a socialist or a communist or like even or probably not a communist but I wonder if he was a socialist uh, maybe not outright but maybe internally. I have no idea what his views are on that sort of thing. What are his views on Star Trek? That's the real question. I mean, realistically, right, what he's arguing for with the social inequality, the redistribution of wealth theory is a form of social democracy, uh, democratic socialism, right? That that all the sort of stuff that you think of when you think of what they're pushing for is built on the back of what he's arguing, I think. What about his emails? What about, but what about his emails? Uh... Right. And then, of course, the voidiest part in all of this is that ultimately it's a really good system of discussion, but it doesn't achieve its it, the aim of being able to justify liberalism to deeply held non-liberals. She's not good enough, Rawls. She's not, she's not quite good enough. <laughs> uh, no, really, though. One of the brilliant one of those brilliant people of all time. Um, so, yeah, if you enjoyed this, let us know. And obviously we have infinitely more philosophers to do let us know what you want to hear more of or less of about those philosophers i hope this was uh, an enjoyable um listen about rawls yay is that what you think you are a hero saved the world didn't i once talk to me after you've done it a couple more times so our hero of the week is actually a group of heroes which is the speakers of nexus 2018 um i was really blown away by going to this was my first skeptical conference um, and I was really happy to be there. And uh, I think what made me happiest was that it was full of women. There were lots of really um, well done um, presentations by women. It, the MC, um, uh, I want to make sure I get this right name right, uh, Leanne Lord, who is hilarious. Um, we're going to try to get her on Philosophers in Space um, because wow. she's a giant, I feel, tra- I, I she's a giant Trek nerd. Oh, no, I've got people for you. Don't you worry. But they, she was they, like, we're she, called Trekkies. All right, Aaron. Right. She showed up with a Star Trek pendant as a necklace. And I was like, all right, you're cool. We're down. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, there were just a lot of uh, amazing women talking about things like Me Too and evolutionary psych. Um, there's someone I want to get on to do a follow-up of talking about plasticity from our Stephen Stitch um, conversation. Uh, and it was just great that they were, you know, so many of these spaces need these conversations about things like Me Too. Um, and it's good to see them doing that. And then also just great that they're just doing all sorts of other stuff. Um, we had, there was a super voidy presenter. Uh, her name is Katie Mack. And she did a presentation on the death of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it was like all the potential sort of cosmological descriptions of the death of the universe. Um, and that was super fun. And then it was followed up by um, Olivia Kosick. Uh, uh, sorry, Koski, uh, who is another person <laughs> I want to get on this show. So I can get her name wrong while she's here. We'll look forward to that. Uh, she did a, a, a presentation on vacationing in space, feasting on brains. And smelling strangers with gorilla science. Oh, uh, it was so the feasting on brains that really got you, isn't it? <laughs> oh my god, it so did. They brought out brains. They brought out um, gelatin substitute for brains to have people take samples of it and see what it see what it feels like to try to experience eating that sort of thing. It was really good. Yeah, I think I did them. that like third grade Halloween. Uh, yeah, right. But this is called science. Uh, it's different. <laughs> it's um no, I mean I think it's wonderful. I I you know, I do these podcasts because I think that we have to work on our persuasion side of things and not just uh the facts and knowledge side. And there were so many wonderful speakers. Marsh uh, uh Michael Marshall was also there at the conference and did a great speech on homeopathy and effectiveness of uh speaking. And and while it's unfortunate, I think not, not enough people know who Marsh is because they should be getting him in to talk about these various um, uh, about how to communicate with journalists, for example, how to package your critique of um, fake medicine in such a way that you can get it out there in the news that can actually help people. Um, and I'm just I'm really happy to see that people are working on the persuasion side of things and that it is being in many cases spearheaded um, by women who are continuing in the community despite the fact that we've seen some problematic behavior in the community it feels like overall we're still moving in a good direction by the community you mean in the skeptic community right in the skeptical community yeah. um yeah and and the atheist community and all of these communities that have been sort of very traditionally male dominated um it just feels like the, the next generation is is much more um uh, has, has a much more diversity of viewpoints and it shows in the quality of the work. Yeah, that's great. So it's, it was inspiring. I'm happy. Made me happy for 10, 15 seconds or so before I remember the, the void. void. <laughs> I remembered where I was. Uh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, that's our heroes of the week. So thank that's you all great. for so much for listening. Um, thank you, GW for being amazing as always. Uh, we'll catch you all next week. We would like to thank our new patrons, Carl Otterson. I'm starting my own intellectual dark web with blackjack and hookers and Brian Hookie. We would like to thank our top patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Dave Maslick, Abe, Corey Johnston, host of the Brainstorm podcast and the Hardcore Skeptic. CampQuest is hiring. More info at campquest.org. Mr. Nobody, Chad Trait, and Scott John Harris at Shaded Spiriter. 
I, said, I think I said Spriter last time. Apologies for that. If you would like to become a patron, find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. As always, remember, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.